0: Welcome to Witchlet, a place to talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, author, publisher, witch, and nosy Scorpio. Carl Ziegler was born and raised in Wilmington, Delaware, but set roots in Atlanta, Georgia, where he lives with his wife, cat, and a three-legged dog. He studied literature and semiotics at New York University, which did not prepare him for a career as a professional computer hacker. Carl writes weird horror under the pseudonym K. Ungehoyer and recently published a collection of flash fiction under the title The Cockroach of the Dada Movement, The Life and Selected Works of K. Ungehoyer, 1908 to 1988. Carl Ziegler, welcome to Witchlet. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited this finally worked out that we could get you on. And as the usual disclaimer, uh, Carl and I know each other. So if this interview sounds a little different, you'll know why. Um, (laughs) But you and I haven't talked about this. so I am excited to talk about this. Our first question for everybody is why write?
1: um, I'm not sure that I could exist without writing. Um, (laughs) You know, I've, I've been writing for it's so long it just feels like breathing um it's something that's i've always gravitated to uh really early on uh, i think i had a teacher and a uh you know my parents were very encouraging of my creative work and uh i just it's always been a part of my life since um mm. you know writing is extremely important to me um just to just to get out specific emotions, um, really engage with myself, um, and really write things that I like to read myself. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when you're creating things that you feel proud of in the end and you feel like you're contributing to, you know, this creative ecosystem, um, I, I like to be a part of that.
0: Um, yeah. so what was the journey from kind of writing for yourself to writing a published book? What did that look like for you?
1: it was difficult it was difficult um i was a literature um semiotics major in college um and i had severe adhd and dyslexia uh, which made reading and writing extremely difficult um so i got really really good at sort of skimming um getting the gist of things filling in the blanks Mm -hmm. um and that really carried over to, to my reading and my writing. Uh, a lot of the things that I like to read and like to read in the past are really short stories, small snippets. You know, the, uh, uh, Franz Kafka, one of my favorite writers, when, when I saw that you could just write a little paragraph and that would be a whole story, uh, it blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, Then the short stories of uh, Jorge Luis Borges, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, you know, I I really Mm -hmm. gravitated towards those weird, occasionally horrific short pieces. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's that's what I would write. It's what I could really wrap my head around. Um, And... uh, it was a difficult process. Uh, when I originally started writing the Ungeheuer stories, um, they were short little pieces of flash fiction. I didn't, really didn't think anybody would want to read them. So I started collecting them all in one single place. And then to stitch them together, I created a, a backstory of a fake author to um, sort of wrap the whole thing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that sort of helped me a lot to work on some larger piece um, in small little chunks, Mm -hmm. um, which is how I could digest it.
0: Yeah. Do you think there was, um, I don't know, I I think about like creating this persona of Uncle Hoyer as, do you think that was a way to kind of make it easier to put that stuff out there to have like this little bit of a storefront to hide behind?
1: absolutely absolutely Um, you know it's a pen name that i've had for a very long time i never even considered writing anything under my own name Um, Mm -hmm. everything i was going to write was going to be an ungoyer specific uh, piece that's changed Uh, i'm writing stuff under my own name now um but having that persona um i think not only sort of separated the work from myself but it gave it an entirely different context Mm -hmm. um when you're reading these short pieces by Some uh, lit student from NYU, uh, born in 1970, you're going to have an entirely different impression of the work than if you think it actually came from a surrealist who was born in the 1920s. So I think it brought an entirely different flavor to the work. And I think it attracted readers that I would have never gotten if I published under my own name.
0: Yeah. I do. One of the, for folks who haven't read it, one of the threads through the book is commentary on the pieces that give you the (laughs) the kind of outline of Uncle Hoyer's life. And i it's just fascinating, like it really reads, like here's this kind of biographic piece following this gentleman's writing. It's, it's um, yeah, I mean, I think if you didn't have the zinger at the end to let people know, it's like, oh yeah, this could totally be a real dude. And that was
1: also sort of my intent. I, I really enjoy literary hoaxes. Um, I, I write about them a lot. Um, all the the stories, you know, Jonathan Swift, um, this is an absolutely true story. Um, Robinson Crusoe was also presented as, uh, as if it was a, a memoir and a true story. Those sorts of things that I just have always been drawn to um, mm-hmm. it's just like when you watch a horror movie and you see it based on a true story come up front like oh, okay I'm, I'm invested I'm, I'm going to see what this is all about and especially mm-hmm. when I find out that's not true um, I, I was really going for that angle uh, and in the, in the early days when I first put the website up um, I was I was getting a lot of that. Um, that specific type of attention Mm -hmm. uh when the new york public library's website was first put up uh they had a a list of author's resources and uh kay ungahoy was listed right between uh, mark twain and jules verne oh wow um, as as an (laughs) author
0: that's gonna make you feel pretty good that you've succeeded in your in your um literary hoax
1: absolutely yeah I, i love that um then a uh there's a woman who Narrated one of the stories for uh, her podcast early on. Um, mm-hmm. And I had to let her know that, you know, Uncle Heuer doesn't really exist. Um, so uh, eventually I wrote a whole essay that I had on the website so I could direct people to the hoax. And mm-hmm. um, Uncle Heuer himself really wasn't as important as the writing at one point. You know, I, yeah. I started getting more focused on the writing than I did at focusing on Uncle Heuer the Matt.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I and, mean, um, Like I, when I first got the book, I I think I told you this, that I just kind of dipped in. I didn't like read it cover to cover. I would just like pick it up and pick a page and read and found it really interesting. I too am a lover of flash fiction. Like I, um, though I write novels, like I... Uh, for a little while with a group of writer friends, we had like a Flash Fiction Friday thing and we would get like a prompt and we'd have to post it by Monday, you know, from this prompt we got. And um, I love the idea of having to tell a whole story like in this snapshot of a photo, almost like taking a photograph. And um, I, I really think, and I think it shows in your book and I think it shows in a lot of other Flash Fiction work, there's something about the surreal and horror that works in that format i think better than almost any other genres in that short format because then your human brain kicks in and extrapolates from there so
1: absolutely um in fact i had a quote from uncle at one point that um Uh, The whole point is to just grab a small little chunk of a larger story and let the reader fill in what came before and what came after that specific moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, that type of leaving it to the reader's imagination works so well with uh, weird horror um, in general (laughs) and anything surrealistic. um, Because you can just set something out there that will make people say, what? And then they just try to answer that question themselves because there's no other information that they can rely on.
0: and often they will scare themselves more than you could have anyway 100 <laughs> um what is it that I think stephen king talks about you know when you kind of how he writes is when there's something horrible in the hole you describe everything around the hole like the texture of the grass and the color of the sky and the smell of the air and then you just let them imagine what's in that hole it'll be the thing that scares them the most
1: yep yep um and i i love stephen king i love his work i really cut my teeth on it when i was a kid uh, my uncle was also really into stephen king and whenever a new king book came out um i'll be home from school and the hardback would be sitting there on the um uh, table <laughs> waiting for me um yeah
0: my family were all big stephen king and like um i was straub uh-huh. readers and um i probably read some of those when I was a little too young to read them, quite honestly.
1: <laughs> oh, same, same. Um, Stephen King's short story "The Jaunt" um, mm-hmm. about teleportation haunts me to this day. Yeah. Um, you know the just the line "Longer than you think, Daddy" will pop into my head. I'm like, nah. horrifying.
0: Yeah, I think weirdly the one that sticks with me, and maybe because I'm a writer, is the typewriter of the gods.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Because it's it's a little bit unlike his other stuff because it's there is like almost a ironic humor to it mm-hmm. but um also kind of the horror of like you create these worlds and um then you're the master the god of them yeah so yeah it's love- like fantastic yeah um so one of the things i noticed about the different pieces and i, I don't want to give like spoilers although i guess you know mm-hmm. There's, it's hard to spoil a tiny story, but yeah. um, the there's I feel like there's two themes, like there's a body horror theme <laughs> that kind mm. of runs through, which I think is very true of Dadaism and surreal movements, is there were a lot of like, you know, kind of looking at the body of this, you know, they're just placed in the body and kind of the the weirdness of being human. I mean, I think those are very true to those, those are true to those movements. There's also a lot about like Greek and Roman gods. There's a lot (laughs) of mythology and stuff in there. So you want kind of, I guess, maybe talk about those threads in the work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So body horror has always been a favorite of mine. Um, uh, Again, I for a large chunk of my life, I was more heavily influenced by movies than I was other authors. Um, it was just easier to consume. Mm-hmm. Um, so David Cronenberg was one of my favorite directors of all time. The, the godfather of body horror. Um, and and then in books that I read that I love, there's a lot of just like visceral, uh, gory, um, descriptions that I just I I fell in love with that sort of thing. Um, The idea that your body can turn against you uh, in one way or another, um, or that your body is being used to harm you or torture you or is out of your control. um, I think those are the most frightening things um, out there. Um, So I definitely love to 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 talk about that a bit. And then mythology. um, Again, the whole short story concept and being able to just grab little chunks, I devoured mythology uh, as a child, Um, especially growing up in a household that was really into a new age occult in the 70s. My parents were um, age of Aquarius hippies. Um, I had access to mythologies from everywhere, Um, and I would buy those books up and i could consume them um so those myths have always been very influential um i love the idea of something so unimaginable and large that sort of uh, lovecraftian co- cosmic horror um uh, I, I try and pull that in as well so mm-hmm. um yeah i love the myths still love the myths um mm-hmm. it's, it's just phenomenal
0: yeah so obviously because of the aim of the podcast I kind of want to dig into your uh, occult '70s childhood. <laughs> <laughs> sure, because I think you know a lot of folks who come to you know either be occult practitioners or occult writers now who are our age, you know, around you know Gen X, probably did not grow up like that. A lot of us grew up in either kind of non-religious or vaguely Christian or very Christian households, so. I, I'm just curious, like, how you feel like that influenced your writing early on, how, you know, the, I guess the threads that continue on into your writing now.
1: Oh, it was massively influential. Um, you know, my. Uh, my father was not religious, but very spiritual, um, and my mother is both spiritual and religious. Uh, so as my sister and I were growing up, they were really adamant about exposing us to every possible religion they could. Um, and letting us decide for ourselves. My father and mother pretty much grew up with the philosophy that uh, all religions are more or less the same um you know what what you're what you're doing is trying to interpret something that is almost uninterpretable. so mm-hmm. different people are going to interpret it in different ways and they wanted my sister and I to interpret it in our own way um but they were, Heavily involved in the uh, '70s new age occult, Um, and that was so much fun as a kid. You know, when when you get to go shopping with your mother and you come home with two new tarot decks, um, you just you feel powerful when you're like (laughs) nine years old and you think you can like tell the future or control uh, things outside. I I loved everything about it. And eventually, you know, I, I was following in their footsteps uh, very closely. Um, I really gravitated towards um, uh, Norse uh, mythology and Norse wicca, uh, which unfortunately has been so just tainted and poisoned these days um, mm-hmm. by just hateful, harmful people. Um, uh, and that was pretty much all my teens. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I. I fully believed it. It was a part of who I was, it was part of my identity. Um, And pretty much until I started to go to uh, college and it sort of fell off. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of people end up rebelling against their parents in one way or another. Um, And my parents really thought that by exposing me to all religions, I would find the one that worked for me. And I ended up becoming an atheist, um, which is probably (laughs) the worst thing I could possibly be. My, My mother still refuses to hear it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's, it's great. Both my parents were extremely loving. I grew up in a very, uh, loving, encouraging, supportive household, um, which mm-hmm. is a, a rarity. Uh, not many people can say that. So I'm extremely lucky in that regard.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I know a lot of atheist witches. So do you still have like elements that you from like a cult or Wicca or anything that you hang on to that don't have a theist bent to them, I guess?
1: Yeah, I think that it really taught me a a respect for nature, um, Mm -hmm. a respect for the the physical world around me. Um, You know, I I, I love the um, pagan statement that, uh, yeah, I worship nature. I can prove it exists. (laughs) <laughs> and uh a, a lot of that sticks with me sure and it definitely yeah. influences my writing um there's a lot of ritual in my writing um a piece that i sold for a anthology in um australia was uh one of the first things that i published under my own name and uh it was all about this uh r- ritual that was taking place in a um uh, old temple and uh the Massive cult outside and another cult that was trying to stop them. Um, Very pulp fiction, uh, very bloody, very gory. Um, (laughs) But uh, just those rituals, you know, the uh, having that background really lets me write those scenes. You know, I feel like I can speak to that. So, yeah, yeah, it's uh, still heavily influential on my work.
0: Yeah. So um you have rituals in your writing. Do you have rituals around your writing? Like what is what is your writing day look like for you? Like when you get to have Carl's ideal writing day, what does that look like? Um probably my
1: biggest ritual around writing is uh just going to the pub.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um I, I love just going to the local pub, sitting down and opening up my laptop, having a beer or two and maybe some fries. And it it puts me in the mood to write. Um, Mm You know, I don't really like socializing. Um, I'm a very introverted person. Uh, So just sitting at the very end of the bar, having my laptop open, pounding away, and just listening to all the conversations around me. Um, You get the young couple that is getting into their first fight at the end of the bar. (laughs) Um, You get the family with the screaming kids behind you, the mother that's late getting to uh, dinner uh, because she had to work longer all those little conversations, I just, just absorb them. And, Mm -hmm. um, I think it just, it helps my writing. It helps me with my dialogue. Absolutely. Um, fleshing out characters. So many of my characters were just based on some random person that was just sitting at the bar that day and just had a specific lilt to their voice or a way of carrying themselves, um, that I just wanted to include. Mm Um, but generally it's, it's, it's still very difficult. We talked about Stephen King earlier, and he very heavily influences my work. His book on writing is something that I go back to quite a bit. Um, and there's one little part in there where he's talking about different writers' writing habits. And uh, he talks about uh, the famous anecdote about James Joyce, um, where James Joyce's uh, friend comes back to their apartment, and uh, Joyce is just on the bed crying just completely beyond himself and his friends like what, james what's wrong He's like i wrote seven words today and he's like james seven words that's fantastic for you you actually wrote seven words in one day it's like yeah but i don't know what order they go in um <laughs> and that is closer to my writing process mm-hmm. um if, if i write a sentence or two i'm really happy about it uh if i can get a couple of hundred words written over the course of a weekend ecstatic. Uh, but there's some weeks I'll go a week or two without writing anything at all. Um, it just depends on when the mood hits me. And whenever I've tried to force myself to have a writing time, force myself to be in a specific place to do writing, it, it just completely freezes me up. Um, yeah. So I have to let it hit me and write right when it comes to me. Um, yeah. It's it, it definitely doesn't make things fast. Um, <laughs> But eventually, I get things done.
0: Yeah. I know. I've talked with other folks on the show and just writers I know. And I think, you know, when you're, especially if you do creative writing in college or um, if you kind of come up in a workshop, kind of things like, oh, writers write every day. You do, this is a job. You do blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, for some people, that doesn't work. I mean, it's, and I think it um, kind of sets you up for failure if that's not how you work you think, oh, I I'm not legitimate because I don't do this thing that I'm supposed to be doing to be a real writer. Um, yeah, it's.
1: I quit it's writing a- several times because of that very thing. You know, mm-hmm. I thought that I if you're going to be a writer, you have to do it this way. And I couldn't. And so I would stop writing for years sometimes mm-hmm. and try and do music or painting or uh, animation. I was really big into animation for a little while just to still create something. But I always came back to writing. And um, when I realized how I write and how I create. Um, I think that's one of the hardest lessons for any author to to learn, because every mm-hmm. author is unique. Every author is going to have their own process. And finding what works for you is is really the first step to um, writing things that you believe in and you like.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I mean, I'm always fascinated by people's writing habits and what they do, but kind of like an uh, anthropological thing, not like, oh, I should do this. And I think maybe that's the way we should approach it, rather than this is this is how writers write, and you must do it this way to call yourself a writer. That's, yep. that's garbage and yep. unhelpful. Um, so when you got those stories together, I, too, write slow, so I empathize with that. I'm a slow writer. Um, <laughs> But so I know it can take a long time to kind of get to like the groundswell of this is this is ready to maybe go out into the world. So um, how did you decide what you were going to do with this material and and how you were going to publish?
1: Yeah, that's interesting because these stories um, have been really put together over the course of 30 years, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I wrote I would write in sort of bursts. Uh, I wrote a big chunk of them in the uh, 90s um, for the website specifically. I moved here to Atlanta, and that sort of fell off. And then I would, after getting settled in Atlanta, I wrote a little bit more, pushed it out to the website. and um it's only been in the past maybe just before the pandemic hit um where i've really gotten back into my writing and i started just cranking out new and stories um left and right um and around that same time kdp um was uh, coming up and mm-hmm. i was realizing that Early on, I was expecting that, you know, all literature is going to be on the web, right? In the early days of the Internet, everybody is just going to be going to websites rather than reading books. And luckily, that's never really happened. Um, (laughs) And I do all of my reading, um, you know, on my Kindle or my uh, hardbacks and paperbacks when I want a, you know, a permanent copy. Um, And I realized that that is sort of the trend. Uh, And I started thinking about for the first time putting all the stories together and actually publishing a, a paper book um and it was it was a weird concept for me honestly um mm-hmm. but once i wrapped my head around it it just became familiar the whole process of putting together like an introduction and uh all the, the formatting concepts and, and making sure there's a good flow to the overall stories um kind of shuffling them up um i really enjoyed the process i fell in love with it um and it just started to work. I was afraid I wouldn't have enough of them to actually put together. I expected it to be like a thirty-page book, um, and uh, as I started putting it together, I'm like, "Wow, I have a lot more than I thought I did." Mm-hmm. Um, and if I flesh out this section and I add this section in here, this could actually be something. Um, yeah. So it was it was a different part of the process, but a really exciting one.
0: Mm-hmm. I think as just as a reader coming to it, um, it would be surprising to find out that they were over that much of a period because they seem like a very coherent work
1: thank you um i think they do have a a very specific voice to them um when i write uncle her stories i i have a different mindset than some of my Mm -hmm. other stories The. Failure of uh, Godier's Gate, um, the, the, the ritual one I was talking about earlier for mm-hmm. that Australian anthology, um, it does not fit Ungolheur's style at all, uh, which is why I published it under my own name. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that freed me up a lot, because when I'm writing Ungolheur, I think like Ungolheur, and those are the stories I write. Uh, when I realized I could write as myself, um, that opened up a whole new world of things where I wasn't necessarily pigeonholed into that that on her mindset. So yeah. I definitely have a, a voice that I try to emulate when I write those stories. So it, it's happy to I'm happy to hear that that yeah. works in a sense.
0: Yeah, I am. I, I love this idea of like writing as two people. and more than just like the idea of like, oh, this is my pen name. Like this is actually a whole persona of a person rather than um. so now that you write as both like, do you have preference?
1: Um, yeah, I do i think I think ungle is probably done for now. Mm-hmm. um, I'm writing different things uh, than I wrote as Un Hoyer, and then <laughs> like you know, when I was writing an ungle I would really get into that dada surrealist mindset um and now writing as myself and sort of freeing myself from those from that box <laughs> um I have a lot more freedom, a lot more leverage to do what I want to do. Um, so I'm working on longer pieces. I'm working on pieces that wouldn't necessarily fit on um mm-hmm. directly. Um, and it feels like a, it feels like progress. It feels like I'm moving forward with this. Um, <laughs> so right now, I really enjoy writing as uh, Carl Sigler. Oh
0: well, good. <laughs> That's exciting.
1: It is. Uh,
0: um, we, we talked a little bit about you know, kind of how we come to being writers and what we think writers are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there's like especially good advice or especially bad advice you've been given as a writer?
1: Ooh, um, hmm, That's a good one. Um, Especially good advice, uh, really, um, probably the Stephen King anecdote I just mentioned, which made me realize it was okay to write slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then anything that comes out of the mouth of David Lynch, um, he's just one of the most motivational people from a creative standpoint. And the idea of being at rest and you know diving deep to get the big fish um, are things that I still rely on when I'm writing. As soon as I put my fingers on the keyboard, that's coming into my head. Mm-hmm. Um, bad advice? Probably that, that same good-hearted, um, good motive, uh uncle who really thought that if I wasn't writing tight genre fiction, I shouldn't be writing at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I should stick with horror or go science fiction. Uh, he was a big sci-fi guy as well. Um, and I would show him my stories, which really don't fit those categories at all. Um, and he was like, uh, this is good, but you should probably like had a horrifying clown in or something that just would not fit <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was very discouraging in in the early days.
0: Mm-hmm. I, know, I do think about genre a lot. Um, like, I think most people who write read more widely. I mean, they obviously have an interest in the genre they write, but they tend to read a lot, you know, nonfiction, fiction, everything around that. And so I always feel like the genre is for the label on the shelf. It's mm-hmm. not for me when I'm writing, you know, like I'll figure out what that label is afterwards, maybe.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and sometimes the stories I want to tell, it's really hard to put a label on it, right? Yeah. I mean, we talk about um, the, the weird lit category, which is occasionally also called weird horror. Um, and it was kind of a gray space and, and even internal to self-identifying authors and work of quote weird lits um it's just a wide spectrum of different things that are going on um and i agree i I try not to think in any of those terms i just kind of get a random idea in my head and i just keep on expanding on it um usually it's just maybe just a single scene maybe it's the name of a character um you know the story i'm working on now um was about a giant finger that just appeared out of the uh, sky pointing at a house and um <laughs> and that was that was just the idea that popped into my head Just very kind of like monty python god pointing his finger down um and then i started fleshing that out the uh, little girl who lives there and how she grows up with this finger pointing at her house and um you know, I, I try and start off with just an idea and then I just see where the story goes. And at the end of it, maybe it's going to fit a genre, maybe it won't. But mm-hmm. uh, the story is what it it's going to be. It, it yeah. pretty much I'm just sort of a a vessel carrying the story out a lot of times. I don't even know where it's going.
0: Yeah, I I think about that, too. like I have jokingly described sometimes writing is channeling because like I mm-hmm. don't necessarily know where it's coming from, like it's obviously me. Mm-hmm. somewhere but you know sometimes these people just feel like they're already real and you're just telling their story
1: absolutely absolutely um and i love that and that also goes back to a lot of um uh surrealism right the concepts of automatic writing mm-hmm. um the exquisite corpse where where things kind of happen by accidents or forced accidents um and then something bigger comes out of that because there wasn't really any explicit thought process i think a lot of times when at least when i'm writing um it it does feel like channeling to a certain extent it's just kind of flowing out and i'm not really thinking about it until after it's on the the paper i'm like oh i don't know where that came from but all right i like that
0: (laughs) i like that yeah or my favorite is when i have a character who i think has a purpose in the story and then it turns out that their purpose is completely other than what i anticipated
1: Mm Hmm. oh or uh I, i've i killed so many characters um and not like as part of the plot or story but just realizing that this character is completely superfluous it's not really mm-hmm. doing anything here and i like them um, so i have a whole slush box of stuff that i cut out of stories mm-hmm. um that i can go back to and see if they fit in different stories um, yeah. so i'm hoping this one the brother of the uh one character in the this other story i'm writing didn't work out at all, uh, but I think he's going to have a place in the next story idea that I'm working on. Yeah.
0: So when I, I guess I've been working on a novel and I always have like a second document behind it where I, like if I excise something, it's like, I don't want to throw it away. So I just put it in this other document, which becomes, becomes kind of weird to read over the course of writing the novel, but I always feel like you just don't know there might be gold in there somewhere. Don't throw it away.
1: So. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, so what, um, like now, like if Uncle Hoyer is kind of done for now, at least, like what, what do you hope readers get from this book now and kind of how would you want them to kind of shift to reading your work? I guess so it's like. What what do you hope your audience takes away from those stories and what is that different than what you want them to take away from your own the stuff writing under your name?
1: That's good. That's a good question. I, I think that. Um, one of my goals writing the Uncle stories was just to keep the world a little, a little bit weird, um, <laughs> you know, I just I love reading things that are really odd, weird, um, bizarre. And I don't feel like there's enough of that around right now. Um, So, again, I'm trying to write things that I would want to read. You know, the um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez stories, like the man with the enormous wings, um, was just so influential on me. Uh, You know, just this potential angel or maybe just a man with uh, wings shows up on a beach and becomes just a a local sideshow attraction. Um, And just just odd. That's just so so weird. I love everything about that. Um, and you just don't see stories like that these days. So uncle Hoyer is my attempt to just add a little dash of weird into people's day. Um, I think reading the uncle Heir stories, the way you did just, uh, most of them are only two or three paragraphs tops. They might not even fill a full, full page and there's not necessarily an overall arc. So opening it to a random page and just reading what's there is, is exactly how I would recommend that. Um, my newer stuff i think is very similar you know i still have that goal of adding something weird to the world um i I really i I love that stuff so i think that um the the work i'm doing now is a little bit more complex a little bit more fleshed out it's it's longer right i mean there's actual plot there's actual (laughs) characters that are interacting with each other for a long period of time um so i'm hoping that uh It's going to be something that you can really dive into a little bit deeper than you can with the uncle her stories, because it is just flash fiction. um, And maybe provides a little bit of a richer weird experience for people, so I see it as sort of a a next step, a growth of what uncle Hare's original voice was uh, with the freedom to not necessarily be tied to that persona.
0: yeah. So. I set you a question. So, you know, we have a game of chance at the end for your last question. But before we get to that, do you want to talk about what you have coming up and let people know how to get your book or get in touch with you or follow you Uh, on all the socials or whatever?
1: uh, All the socials. Um, Yeah. So my. the work that I'm currently working on, it's barely in first draft mode. It's going to be a while before I get that out. Uh, when I do, I'll definitely be posting it on, on my uncle Hoyer socials. So I still use uncle Hoyer as my primary author's profile. Um, so on Twitter, that's at K.UngleHoyer, no, just K. Hoyer. Um Instagram the same, and it's going to be at K.UngleHoyer across all the platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also uh, go to the website directly. That's uh, cockroach.org, just like the bug. <laughs> um, and that grew over time too, right? So Ungolheuer originally, I registered the domain cockroach.org back in the early 90s um, where you could still get a domain that was that clear um, and obvious. But then I had to tie cockroach in with Ungolheuer somehow because um, I liked the domain. And originally it was um, spiritual cockroaches. Um, that, that became, um, cockroach engenderment where each story he was writing was a little cockroach that he was creating. Um, and finally, the most recent incarnation is, um, part of his backstory where he was just a kid tagging along with all these Dadaists and surrealists in Berlin, and, uh, they nicknamed him the little cockroach, um, cause mm-hmm. he was always around so much better than the other two. <laughs> so much better.
0: And kind um, of fluid. I mean, like it just slides into the book and you're like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. Yep. So
1: um and that, that was a relatively new incarnation too. Um mm-hmm. when I was going through and revisiting all the old work and rewriting it for for the publication. Um so yeah cockroach.org uh you can go directly there. Uh you'll see how to contact me. You'll also see all the links to all my socials as, as well. And uh you can also email me uh Pretty much anything at cockroach.org will get to my inbox. Um, so <laughs> Kate at cockroach.org is is typically uh, what I give out to people.
0: Great, um, and we'll have all those links and stuff in the show notes so people can find those pretty easily. Since you know sometimes listening does not translate to remembering <laughs> yep. those things. So for the last, Uncle Hoyer. yeah, Ungelhayer is. um yeah, before before I started recording, Carl, I was telling Carl I've been studying German as kind of my pandemic project. And um, it was it was fun to dip into the book and go, oh, I, I don't have to go look these up. <laughs> and Uncle Heuer is like monstrosity, right? Like that's kind of the yeah. translation. Which...
1: So back in the um, early 90s, I was hanging out at a tattoo shop quite a bit. I was just a regular there. And um, the tattoo artist was named Carl with a c i'm um, carl with a k um so to not mix us up he was just carl and i just went as k so people just call mm-hmm. me k uh, and things got a little bit crazy at the tattoo shop there's a lot of drinking going on and um eventually i got nicknamed k monster in the um tattoo shop
0: uh-huh.
1: then you know i'm german i took german i love german monster became Ungehoyer and k uncle became that new persona
0: there you go yeah. We, um also being a german family we have a lot of carls with k in my family too so
1: the only way to spell it what's a c
0: what's a c yeah <laughs> all right so for our last question i'm gonna roll the little die this lovely polyhedral set a D set and depending on what number i get you get a question about death sex religion politics or money
1: oh okay
0: it's kind of related either to work or writing in general i turn out to just like blindside people um (laughs) and and if i roll a six you get to pick which one you want oh okay so and um there are pretty much no other rules oh okay four politics
1: politics (laughs) which
0: is a discussion you and i have had a lot about not on this not on this interview but in general (laughs) um so do you think that writers have political obligations and if they do what would those be?
1: Um it's a great question. I I think everybody has political obligations in some form or fashion, uh, period. We we live in a society, um, we're in a society to support one another. And I think that um, writing and and art in general uh, can't help be political in some form or fashion, um, generally speaking. I I know it affects my work quite a bit. Um, I I look back at that age that I love, um, the uh, Dadaists and Surrealists in Berlin in the um, uh, 20s, and how um, quickly, uh, that just completely changed from these beautiful, weird, crazy, um, artists and people to Hitler's Brown shirts, um, walking through and, and then the fascism, um, that really capitalized on, um, calling these people decadent and perverse and, mm-hmm. eh, you know, Seems like a lot of the same stuff's going around these days too. Um, I also write horror. Um, politics right now is kind of horrific. Um, so I think that everybody really has an obligation to be political in some form or fashion. Um, a decision to not be political is still a decision. Um, and I think artists in general can't help but have it reflect in their in their work in some form or fashion. Um, a, a lot of my work is about power struggles. Um, A lot of my work is about people that are maybe oppressed in some form or fashion um, or experiencing a really horrible situation and how to deal with it. Um, And and I think that that type of writing gives people exposure to those emotions before they have to deal with it in a real world. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I think that ties in with uh, politics directly, especially when so many population of people are under threat right now. Uh, Like, Literal physical threat. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think absolutely, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I mean, me, me too. Obviously, I probably wouldn't have asked that question. Um, but I, it was funny you bring up the Dadas and the surrealists because I was thinking about that um, before we talked. I just kind of uh, did a little refresher because it's been a hot minute since I've read up on Dadaism realism and, and uh, was reminded that you know. They became decadent and perverse to the nazis but they were also a reaction to nationalism before that so i yeah. mean it was kind of this you know y- making ridiculousness of this whole move to like oh you know the fatherland kind of stuff that was going on even before hitler yeah. um yeah i mean I, I don't is there any like very large artistic movement in Western history. I mean, I don't know as much about art outside of Western tradition that isn't kind of a political reaction either to what's going on or the art that came before it. Um, Yes. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And you you see that all over. I just found a um, an old 15th century um, uh, illustration uh, that was basically a political um, political propaganda about um, uh, catholics it was mm-hmm. the catholic protestant um debates and even, even then there's these these pieces of art that speak directly to the political situation at the time mm-hmm. um and, and i think we see that back and forth that cat and mouse game um throughout history throughout cultures um every continent i think that um that you can follow art trends and literary trends music trends um in in any cultural timeline and it will mirror a lot of what's going on um politically in those mm-hmm. areas and at that time um and i think it's, it's part of that that record right it's part of a better understanding of the context of the time uh, by seeing what art was being created then too so yeah. um, we have an important place in history and i think it's important to respect that
0: mm-hmm. i'm always surprised when um i mean that that thing I can think of right now is when certain people on the right are surprised that bands like Rage Against the Machine are political and are like, you know, just shut up and sing. And I'm like, did you really listen at any point before now? Like just this idea that um, somehow now the artist should not be political. Like just do the thing or, or just play basketball or just, you know, don't have... A political voice in the society that you also live in. <laughs> right. This doesn't make any sense to me as a as a human or a yeah. writer that that suddenly like oh well you're just a artist or a creator you shouldn't have a political say and I'm like yeah who do, I mean, who do they round up first?
1: Right. Yep. Um, exactly. And the you see it in the horror movie community as well, right? Um, mm-hmm with, uh, Jordan Peele, uh, being, you know, too, too woke, he's embedding politics in his, uh, movies way too much. And, you know, that just turns me off. And when is horror not been political, you go back to night of the living dead. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that was about police brutality. It was about the Vietnam war it was about so much that was going on at that specific point in time. Yeah. Um, the exorcist, um, omen, uh, all, all of these movies, I mean, throughout history, they've been always making a political statement and the fact that uh, there's so many people that somehow want entertainment that is, or whatever, some sort of piece of artwork that is devoid of that is sterilized from what that is. um, I I just don't understand it at all does not make Mm -hmm. any sense to me.
0: I mean, any creative endeavor is contextualized Mm -hmm. by the culture, the person's living in. I mean, that's just kind of how being a human works right Yep. so yeah i it's it's a strange phenomenon to me that that's like you know just shut up and do whatever i want you to do take my money and and don't try and tell me anything Mm -hmm. and i'm like yeah that's not how that works
1: and go elsewhere then because i'm i'm not going to do that
0: yeah and I, i think the other the flip side of it that i find interesting is you know i've been to writers conferences and and people will say on panels or like in conversations well you know i just don't say anything political publicly because i don't want it to hurt my sales and i'm like wow i don't want them buying my book if they're a fascist sorry (laughs) right
1: and if you're not willing to be open about you know your politics because of your sales i'm not sure i want to read that book either
0: Yeah, it's like you know, there's no way that my politics aren't in my work. So if they disagree with them so vehemently, they're not going to enjoy my work, I don't think, or they're not going to see it for what I think it is.
1: And I think there's also a a stigma, especially in 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 literature, um, where especially fiction that is written with some political message, um, a lot of times can be really clumsy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which isn't necessarily the because of the mentioning of anything political, but just because they don't know how to to, to convey that message in a very fluent, fluid way, um, and it can seem really chunky and clumsy, and you know, not really worth the read. So I can see where some of that criticism comes from. But then you look at you know, historical writers, Voltaire, and um, uh, oh my God. I'm totally blanking on um, Jonathan Swift. Jonathan Swift. It <laughs> happens. <laughs> yeah, um, and then even today, uh, China Mieville, um, who's a um, uh, open uh, communist in the UK, and it's really reflected in his weird works, um, and in a very, very. Excellent way because his his work is truly amazing. I, I wish he would get back to fiction, uh, but I understand what he's doing and, and I appreciate him for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that um, it, it can be done right, and uh, when it is done right, I don't think there's anything more important.
0: Yeah, yeah. I um, I had a, a acquaintance who happened to I, I'm a big Billy Bragg fan. Love Billy. Um, and I have an acquaintance who is a fan and I mentioned something about going to a show. And she was like, I, you know, I love his music, but I just can't stand to listen to him talk about politics. And I just don't want to see him live because of that. I'm just over it. And I'm like, I, I Is not a visual medium, but if you could, listeners, if you could see me, like my face is like what? Excuse (laughs) me. (laughs) I would pay extra to hear Billy Bragg talk. In fact, I have just gone to hear him talk and not do songs. So,
1: yeah, I mean, have you listened to his lyrics
0: at all? Yeah, Um, it was it was an eye opener about like oh. I have to say that was one of the first times in my life I was just like, "Oh, people can listen to this or read something or see me and just clearly not get what's going on." Yep. And and I was like, "Well, I mean, the music is good. and great. It's great love songs, but you know, he's also a very political person. Like that's who he is, mm-hmm. and it's in the music too." And I was just shocked and surprised. So.
1: That's yeah. That's crazy. You know, especially for me coming from a uh, big punk rock background, all the punk rock music was political, right? I mean, and when you went to a Dead Kennedy show, sometimes Jello would just be up there talking about how crappy Reagan is for the entire damn show.
0: Mm -hmm. Loved
1: it. Loved every moment of it.
0: Reagan and, you know, Thatcher like fueled punk music. I mean, in so many ways.
1: Yeah. There's a whole Dead Kennedy song of just a conversation between Thatcher and Reagan on a phone with them like grinding guitar (laughs) in the background. Classic.
0: yes and i mean i I do kind of it is interesting to me um what's going to come out of now like you know what is the art that comes out of what's going on now because it's it's different i mean i think there's you know that uh we're past a whiff of fascism like we're hardcore in it and i think that's going to be interesting to see you know what what art comes out of that, not, I mean, it's hard to say that because like, there's no way to live through it and be able to have this, um, like, oh, fascination about it at the same time. It's a strange dichotomy of like being a like, I don't want to live through this just yeah. to see what comes out the other side, you know?
1: Yeah. But here we are. But here we are. Yeah. <laughs> so let's get to the other side.
0: That's right. Let's, yeah. let's, you know, work, right. Whatever we need to do to get there. So
1: yeah.
0: Well, awesome. Well, Carl, thank you for being on the show. I, it was so great to talk writing with you. And um, when the next thing comes up, let's chat again.
1: Absolutely. I, I really appreciate talking to you. It's so great to see you again. Um, we're we're going to have to get out to uh, your side of the country and uh, come visit soon.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a plan. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Excellent. lit is a production of Thousand Volt Press and is edited by Kaifel Agostini. Our music is Voices by Alexander Shinekar. You can support our work at koficom ficom slash witchlitpodcast. And if you'd like to submit your own death, sex, religion, politics, or money questions, or have questions or comments about the show, you can send an email to victoria at witchlitpod.com. And please be sure to let us know if we can use your name on the show transcripts and all our previous episodes are available at witchlitpod.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at witchlitpod. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and consider giving us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other witches find the show. Thanks for listening and for reading Witchy.